Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the diverse worlds of regenerative living, permaculture, and natural building as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I'm thrilled to guide you through this week's episode. So let's jump right in. Hi, this is Sarah Reese from New Society Publishers. We are big fans of the Abundant Edge podcast. Oliver's guests talk about so many of the same topics that we publish on, and he talks with a lot of our authors too. We're proud to be a sponsor of this podcast that is doing such valuable work spreading the word about how to create a finer future together. New Society Publishers has been a leader in sustainable publishing for over 30 years. If you're looking for solutions-oriented books, please visit our online store at newsociety.com, other online retailers, or visit a fine bookstore near you. Matt Powers, author of The Permaculture Student, professional permaculture educator, and my good friend, is coming out with his first course teaching writing and self-publishing. Now, if you've ever struggled to plan, write, edit, publish, or promote your ideas, then this is the course for you. Matt has honed his proven methods that have helped him to crank out more than 15 books and bypass publishing companies to get as much as eight times more profit by working with printers directly. In just eight weeks, he'll teach you how to plan and write your book fast, edit and polish your work, market and build your audience, then publish your work on your own. You'll get access to live Q&As, online self-paced material and videos, and an online community of writers for support. I'm even going to be taking this course myself. Registration ends May 28th, so don't wait. Go to thepermaculturestudent.com and click on the Courses tab in the navigation bar to sign up today. Matt and I look forward to seeing you there. I'm super excited to share today's interview with all of you, not only because I had such a good time speaking with Loxley and Rhapsody from The Story Connective, but because they impart such incredible insights into storytelling, connecting to community, and a topic which I'm increasingly interested in, which is listening. Now, not only listening as a passive way of absorbing information, but active listening by asking good questions and demonstrating that you've heard and understood the other person. Now, some of you might ask, how does this fit into regenerative living and permaculture? To which I would say, listening and communication are essential to the design process of everything from ecosystem regeneration to social permaculture and communities and observing systems at a deeper level. So throughout this season in general, I'm going to be getting back to basics and strengthening the fundamentals of good design. And I think all of you out there would agree with me when I say that honing the skills of observation, listening, and then communicating what you've learned through storytelling are essential to understanding the context and nuances of any design project. Especially as we wrap up this month's focus on regenerative community and its many forms, the most common challenge I've heard and even experienced myself that gets in the way of healthy community dynamics is communication and conflict resolution. Now I first met Loxley and Rhapsody at a New Year's party at our friend's place across the valley from us. They were traveling on their honeymoon and visiting our mutual friend Manola, and we hit it off immediately when I learned that they also produce podcasts and are passionate about social permaculture. The two of them are based on the island of Maui in Hawaii, and publish stories that strengthen community wherever they go. So during this conversation, we talk about their journey, how to tell better stories, the power that those narratives can have in connecting people, and much, much more. So before I give it all away, here's Loxley and Rhapsody from the Story Connective. <laughs> Welcome, guys. Uh, I'll have you introduce yourselves in just a second, but thank you so much for not only agreeing to be on the podcast, but spending some time here on our farm. It's always a pleasure to get to talk to people in person. 
seen that so many of the interviews that I do are over Skype and I don't get to see people's faces. This is a real treat. The two of you represent the story Connective, which is an amazing podcast. And before I go too much into that, how about each of you introduce yourselves and we'll go from there. Yep. My name is Loxley and I am the co-founder of storyconnective.org, O-R-G. And my name is Rebecca Rhapsody. It's so great to be here on the farm. We're thrilled to be in Guatemala. We're usually in Maui, Hawaii. So let's start out by talking a little bit about your each of your backgrounds individually, how you came to focus on regenerative lifestyle skill sets, and eventually culminated into a podcast centered around storytelling. So for myself, I love nonfiction absolutely love nonfiction love history I love politics I love anthropology and for about 10 years of my early adult life I got obsessed completely obsessed with documentaries I was just I found out that you could watch them online and I was watching documentaries about all sorts of things I mean yes anthropology and history but also about arts and the history of cinema and Uh, so much. And for a lot of it, I realized that the great majority of the documentary film world, I I would hazard a guess guess of 95% or more, um, talks about the problems of the world. It's very, very negative. And after about 10 years of that, I just was in total despair about the world around me. And then I myself discovered i stumbled upon this documentary called in grave danger of falling food which you can watch on youtube it's about 50 minutes long and it's a biography of bill mollison the co-founder of the concept of permaculture and it slipped me into this abundance based solutions based paradigm and ever since then i mean i just i went the other direction and i started studying permaculture and practicing permaculture and I still love nonfiction and documentary work so for me the podcast is a way to participate and actually be a creator and a producer not just a consumer but a producer in solutions-based uh, nonfiction. Fantastic. I'm originally from Maui, Hawaii. I was born and raised there and I lived there until I was 18 and I actually couldn't wait to leave because it was such a small place and it was just what it was. And I would watch the TV and I would see all these amazing commercials for amusement parks and Fred Lobster (laughs) and uh, just all these types of businesses that we don't have on Maui. Um, So I really wanted to leave. I wanted to move to a big city and then I did. And then after I had that experience of living away and experiencing a different culture and experiencing a place where people weren't so connected to the natural world around them, Maui and all that it taught me while I grew up there became really important to me. And so that's where my, my grounding in, in caring for the earth really comes from is being blessed to have been brought up in a place where nature is gorgeous all around me and makes my day better every single day just by being around it. Um, And I've had the luck of getting to live in a lot of different places. And some people just don't have that. That's just not the reality of a lot of different people. Um, So that started really creating for me this understanding of how your reality shapes your worldview. And I like to tell a little story about this, which is if a 
if you have a fish that's swimming around and you ask that fish to describe what color the water it is that they're swimming in, they're going to say, what water? Because they don't know they're in water. It's not until that fish is possibly caught and then makes it into the non-water world and then hopefully makes it back to its other water friends that it's going to be able to say, dude, we're swimming around in water. I didn't know it was there before. And that was me in Hawaii. I was swimming around in a certain water and then I had to leave and live someplace else and then come back to it in order to understand it. And that's one reason why I think the stories are really important is because when you hear about another person's experience or you hear about another person's worldview, not even their worldview, but like actually done within an experience, it opens up my mind, opens up my whole being really to another way of being and doing. Um, so to take that a little, down another level, level, I also grew up doing theater. In theater, you're quite literally putting yourself into a different storyline and living it and experiencing it and trying to figure out what are the motivations of the different characters. And you've got lighting and costumes and stage and a bunch of different people are working together to create this thing. And I, I just always loved that when I was little. I fell in love with theater for the first time when I was five, possibly earlier. And it was a huge part of my life and still is. And then when I moved away, I moved to Chicago. Uh, I went to Northwestern University and I studied theater there and theater was different there. It was a lot more professional, whereas the school that I'd gone to beforehand for, for high school, theater was primarily community based. We're doing this as a community, whereas at Northwestern it was, okay, the actors go here and the set designers go here and you shall not meet. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was a different experience. And there was, there was a lot going on in Chicago um, that ultimately somebody um, told me that it was okay, that I was not feeling like I fit in there. And like, maybe I was having culture shock and maybe I actually fit back in more in Hawaii and that was really helpful for me to hear um, but ultimately while I was there I learned that the professional theater path of, path of being, an, uh, being an actor and going on auditions just really um, ground me down but I still loved theater and I loved theater as an educational tool Northwestern has an amazing children's theater department and an amazing um, creative drama department. And that's where I really started delving in. And, and storytelling as well. I got to take professional storytelling classes in college. It was great. <laughs> we just sit around barefoot. <laughs> Which I always thought was funny in Chicago in the winter when other people on the other side of campus are like learning about calculus and stuff. Oh, wow. It was great. <laughs> You'd like bring a guitar to class. We'd be singing together and it'd be so, so fun. <laughs> I love school. What a school. contrast. Yeah, it was awesome. And, um, Creative drama, what that is, is you're using theater as an educational experience. So you're not just teaching kids about, say, the Revolutionary War, something they're always going to learn about. Instead, you have them act it out. Instead, you have them pretend to be a soldier writing a letter home and taking all that stuff that they learned from a book and internalizing it and making it part of their own story and then bringing it out. And I remember that they did this exercise where they asked us, what are the most what are the memories that you have from school that you felt like you learned the most? And for every single one of us across the board, it was something experiential and something that was part of our own story. So that learning about it and creating curriculums about this type of thing and then teaching kids, <laughs> seven, eight, nine, 10, 11 year olds, um, and having them go through experiences. Like I remember we decided to shipwreck a bunch of kids. That was a lot of fun. Uh, just really gave me this concrete understanding of stories inform our understanding of the world. Um, so if you put those two things together, 
uh, flash forward, I met this guy, Loxley, and he started showing me all these different documentaries and things. And I also part of theater is that I understand story, like as I've just lived in a lot of different stories. And so I understand how they they kind of work on the human soul a little bit. Um, and I'm not the only one, but I'm grateful for that understanding and that perspective. So watching these documentaries about how terrible certain parts of the world is and how we're like, we're in this era time of peak everything and nothing's really quite certain. And, um, there's a lot of terrible things that have happened and there's a lot of terrible things that still could happen. If you just leave people there, like, Oh, genocide, <laughs> nothing else <laughs> like it it doesn't make people want to engage and make a difference it doesn't make people want to engage and, and make a change and be part of the solution and people are so busy that it takes a certain type of person that has the time and the bandwidth to think okay well what are the solutions let me go after them so instead can we create experiences can we can we create content can we create stories that engage human resilience resiliency of the human spirit um, and so everything else I've done since there um, usually under the realm, something I call social artistry. And that's a term that was coined by a woman named Jean Houston, who's a mentor of mine. But a lot of different people use it in a lot of different contexts. It's how do you use art and creativity and story to engage people in their potential of who they can be at this time on this planet when we are being asked to really look at ourselves and make changes so that we can be living more resiliency, resiliently um, and regeneratively for generations to come. And so the podcast came about because I've been learning about permaculture with Loxley and I've been learning about social artistry. And these are things that if I engage somebody just in a conversation, they wouldn't necessarily know what I'm talking about right away because they're kind of um, they're concepts that require a little bit of theory and a little bit of a world perspective. And the best way I think to share that world perspective and to, to encourage people to think in these ways is to show and tell the stories of what it is in action and what it's done to a community, what it's done to a piece of land, what it's done to uh, a person. And so that's where the podcast came from. I love that explanation, and I just want to give the listeners a little bit of a background. So over the new year, we're just a couple weeks in, I have been thinking a lot about how I want to theme or redirect this publication for the, for the upcoming season. And I was thinking about all these concepts of becoming a better listener through proactive means and learning how to ask the questions that get people to share and making them comfortable enough to be vulnerable and really give the information that connects with people on another level, um, as well as the practical information that I focused on in previous seasons. And a lot of that comes along with storytelling in a way to engage people and have it connect with their experience in a way that just techniques and information on its own struggles to do or simply doesn't make that bridge. And you guys happen to show up on the scene in our tiny little area of Guatemala at exactly the right moment while I was trying to kind of culminate and, and clarify some of these contexts, uh, some of these concepts. And so tell me a little bit about the power of narrative in your own experiences and how it sort of connected you to these larger concepts of regeneration and holistic thinking. Yeah. So for me, um, in Spanish, the word historia means story and history. So my background is in history and it's about crafting the story of the past in a sense. Um, that said, the way that my 
Western linear male mind always thought was very much in terms of facts and figures and dates and whatnot. And it was very, very much up in the head, although I felt like I could craft a good story with that. Now, I realized later on that that was a story that would resonate with certain types of minds that were similar, more similar to my own. And it didn't have great resonance, right? And so what I later found, um, especially around the year 2016 and the national conversation we were having in the United States at that time was that um, stories of the heart, actual stories that tug at people's heartstrings have resonance. And when you can combine those two, um, it has really powerful resonance. Yeah. And... One way I want to take that question too is this is lowest common denominator, which is uh, permaculture or what have you, or facts or information. We create them as humans to affect other humans, and because it's part of our own story. And so, if you take away anything and everything, you're left with a human being. And what is a human being but a storyteller? The way that I choose to live my life, the way I choose to engage with other people, the things I choose to dress, the things I choose to watch. That's all me telling a story. Um, and even more so than narrative, because when you do become aware of what your narrative is, then you start to be able to change it, which is really powerful in a person's mm. life, um, and live the life that you're wanting to live. Not everybody is aware that they can even do that, but once you are aware, then you can just start making those tiny little changes as, a, as an individual. Uh, that's really important. Um, the thing that I find myself teaching people with even more gusto, though, is the listening. Because listening is, it's that other part of storytelling. Like there is no, there, there is a story if somebody's not listening because maybe you're listening to yourself. Um, but performance is not performance unless there's somebody receiving the performance. It's actually part of the origins of the word. Um, and so knowing how to listen is such a huge part of, of making change in the world because one has to listen and observe interact um, listening as a type of interaction to what is happening now what is actually happening what what are you saying to me what am i saying and can i really listen in a way and respond to you and tell you that i have heard you um and that is a foundational building block to peace to change to uh transformation in the ways that i think our communities need to transform and that's that led us to Storybridge, which is one yeah. of the most sophisticated ways to do that that yeah. I've, I've ever found. Definitely, I love that concept, and I'm really excited to explore the Storybridge even more. But can you talk a little bit first about how one can improve at listening and do so in an active way? Because oftentimes, listening is thought of as you just sit there and receive information, or mm -hmm. uh, you're just a uh, a vessel that is being filled with whatever is coming in. But there are active ways to listen and to actually coax out new experiences and new communications from someone. Totally. And what comes to mind immediately when you, when you say that are two quick uh, tips that I use all the time, which is if I'm listening to somebody and I want to coax out more information or maybe even guide the conversation so it's more resonant for both of us, I'll take a little bit of what I heard them say, almost verbatim, and then throw that out in the question that I just said. Mm. So they feel like they were listened to, and then I'm moving in the other direction, and I'm, I'm making it really easy for them to see the connections of the threads and like 
taking them along that path. It's like going to where they are in the conversation, holding their hand, being like, I see you. I'm listening to you where you are. And Hey, let's go this way. <laughs> That's something I'll do. Um, and perhaps even more concretely, something I'll do is a practice called deep listening, whether they know I'm doing it or not. And this is particularly great if you're having a conflict with somebody. Uh, we collaborate with each other. We do sometimes have conflicts and uh, we use this on each other all the time. Um, so what happens is I'll hear what their person is saying. And then I will say what I heard them say back. And I'll actually say what I heard you say or what I'm understanding from you is that you are frustrated because, okay, here's a concrete example of something that we did this morning. Uh, he wanted to leave the house at 9.30. I wanted to leave the house at whenever, maybe 9.30. And we did not communicate about that. And so he was frustrated. And ultimately I said, like, I hear that you're frustrated because you wanted to leave the house at 9.30. Whereas I was thinking it doesn't really matter what time we leave. And that was really frustrating to you because you feel like you're that we're wasting time and that we're not showing up to against our word and all those things. And I understand that those things are really important to you. I'm sorry. Immediately, like the person cannot like go, go back at you. Like it almost always ends the fight because the person's being seen and their experience being validated. And they know because I listened and then I actively repeated back what I heard, they know that they have been seen, that they, that their point has come across and that I have the emotions that I have and they have the emotions and experience that they have based on something that we have concretely said, this is the reality of the situation. And that's listening. And then we promptly congratulated each other for being on Guatemala time. Yes. <laughs> but the, and then, There's then, a much more fluid concept of time here. And I struggle with that a lot myself. <laughs> and there is another nuanced aspect to this that I really, really like as well. This, um, telling back what you heard the other person say is giving that person space to say yes or no and or yes and and add a little bit more of the nuance of what they might have meant to say originally and that the cloud of uh, whatever was in their head you know not having eaten or frustration or, sure. or whatever um, didn't come through clearly that first time so giving them also that space to respond back, not just, I heard you say this. Yeah. You know, it's an opportunity for clarification. Because yeah. right. so really often important. someone will say something and then we take that and we internalize it in our own story modes and our mm. own conditionings. And then we start saying something else that's our story in our own story modes and their own conditionings. And so then you have like one person talking and the other person talking without knowing for sure that the connection of listening and understanding has happened. So even if you repeat it back and you don't agree with them, it's always a great idea to repeat back what they said so they know that you know what you're not agreeing to. And then you can figure out where the agreement is. This is really powerful stuff. I can already see so many examples in our <laughs> own group dynamics and conflicts here on the farm where that could have been something that really facilitated the communication and the understanding on both parties. Now, I'm going to flip the, the switch on this a little bit. How can you communicate with somebody to make it easier for them to listen to you and make sure that you are heard. I mean, within, within what you, we can actually control, obviously you can't control someone else. Cause you just mentioned there that we hear, you know, definitely objectively the words or the communication that someone puts out there. But from there, it goes through our own filters and it goes through our own sort of way of translating the information. And we come to our own conclusions or take what we want from it oftentimes unconsciously. 
How can you answer? I do. Yeah. So it's it's a matter of trying to get your intended communication Mm -hmm. past the filter of the other person. Yeah. Potentially. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, I I really want to reemphasize that aspect of listening because it's almost like a a gift giving culture, Mm -hmm. right? So you, if you're actively listening to that person, and in a sense, it's it's maybe a bad metaphor, but uh, picking your battles where you don't always have to speak up about every single little thing that's happening and just actively listening and show them that you're listening in time when it's my turn to speak, for example, I've noticed that the economy of my words being used less is actually maybe it carries more weight in the sense that um, people are ready to actively listen to what I've had to say because it's, it's a reciprocal thing, I think. Totally. I love that analogy of the gift giving. Um, that's how a lot of cultures work in this world. That's how Hawaii works too. So I've been learning a lot about that. And that's one of my focuses of 2019. Uh, but <laughs> when you listen to somebody, you're giving them a gift. And like when you show that you've really listened to somebody and you really heard them, they feel like they've received a gift often. I know I do. Um, and so then they want to do something for you. And so they're more set and primed to want to listen to you. So if you can, in a situation, listen to them first, great. Then if you feel like you've already done a lot of listening and you still are not getting heard, um, what I will do is I will be really clear about what our common goal is. Mm -hmm. So there's something to reach together. And so if I'm having a conflict and I'm not feeling heard, I can say, we don't have a conflict right now, but I would be like, okay, Oliver, I hear you. (laughs) (laughs) I hear that you're saying this and this and this. It's really important to me that we're able to work together in this. And part of that is that I need to feel like I'm being heard and I'm not being heard. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like I'm being heard. So I want to talk to you about what it is that I am experiencing and like what I need to be heard about. Um, And that usually like primes them and and, like makes it makes it known to them like what we're about to share is really important and important to us achieving our goals together Mm -hmm. so it kind of motivates them to want to listen um and i'm also aware that a lot of people don't know how to listen and so i might even ask them i'm gonna say this and then i want you to repeat back what it is that i said so i know that i was heard I've used that really effectively with kids before. Yeah. It's a good kind of training We're method. We're just for them. big kids. Yeah, it, totally. <laughs> totally. It the is. The same tactics. Absolutely. It, it does. Yeah, for sure. Um, and if that still doesn't work, then I would really think, is this somebody I want to collaborate with? Mm. I mean, if it's a mentor, if I'm somebody who's like teaching them. Are they going to be able to meet me on my level? Exactly. Exactly. Mm. Like, so, I couldn't have a relationship with somebody who can't listen really well. Along this line of keeping the conversation going and facilitating listening from both sides, definitely doing what you can to control, but also helping the other person to meet you halfway and ensure that you're being heard. Uh, I really would love your feedback or your, your insights on a concept that I've been fascinated by lately and usually comes in the the form of uh, like a relationship to business. Now, have you heard of Simon Sinek? No. Okay. So he's a wonderful presenter and a thinker on healthier work environments. And he comes through with the concept of the infinite or the finite game. Mm -hmm. And the basic idea is that finite games are really useful for things like sports, where there's clearly defined uh, rules and there is a start and a stop and there can be a winner or a loser. But the problem comes in is when people try to play infinite games, things like life or business or politics, 
by infinite parameters. Infinite. Or sorry, by, by finite parameters, where they pretend like there are agreed upon rules and that there is a stop and a start. So the concept of winning in business or defeating your competitors or winning in politics or even in relationships or communication. And instead of treating it and what I like the way that we're putting this in context right now is, is that of communication and especially relationships, where if you are playing a relationship or uh, let's say a conversation by finite rules where you're trying to get one up on the other person or be right or um, kind of make your point and then and then you win somehow. I know I have definitely done this in previous conversations where I like, ooh, I can really show them. I can I can be right in this case. I'll, I'll show them what I meant. Whereas if you switch that and play by infinite rules, it changes what the objective is. Hmm. Where instead of trying to make your point, the objective is to keep the conversation going, to keep conversation and communication alive and making sure that rather than uh, winning in the conventional sense or making your point, you make sure that everyone feels heard and that communication continues on for as long as possible. Yeah. And the relationships keep the building. Exactly. So how can stories be used as a tool to play relationships and communication more as an infinite game and give up on this concept of winning in them? No. Okay. <laughs> that was a very loaded question. That's a very loaded question. And I, I like that context of the finite and the infinite. And um, I, I, I am a facilitator for different groups. And I just a little plug there. I've learned that it's really helpful to create finite spaces within the infinite and like just have that going. And like, how can you make something um, explicit versus implicit? Like, are there implicit rules going on here that not everybody in this space actually knows about? Mm. Those are really great things to pay attention to, too. Assumptions, all that stuff. Uh, whew. So it's, I think what you're saying <laughs> is how do you use storytelling and narrative to create more infinite situations where it's not I win, you win, but it's we both win and we keep this conversation going. Mm -hmm. Is that the exactly. question? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I can't tell you concretely, but it's, it's something that fascinates me. And that's one reason why I'm still interested in storytelling. Yeah. Let's explore it together. And uh, my best answer to this right now is creating a storytelling practice in the business. Okay. Where and because we are hard grained to listen to stories, um, one of my teachers and mentors and friends, his name is um, Richard Owen Gear, and he's the creator of the Story Bridge Method, which is something that we use on our podcast and that we use to facilitate like, high quality spaces with people that are working together, um, high quality spaces of connection and listening and getting to know each other and getting to know the 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 we message and the us message of a group in a space it's a lot of fun it's called story bridge uh what he likes to say in his introductions to it is that we've been sitting around a, f a fire telling stories for eons and like imagine that you were a group of people crossing a desert and there was one oasis and that oasis had the trees and the water and all the things and there was a group of people already there and they had that fire etc you've basically got two choices. Either you can fight that group of people or you can tell stories and by telling stories, you become relations with each other. That's a fantastic example. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, 
cultivating that practice of telling stories every day in your communities and your business and your schools and your churches everywhere cultivating a practice and really giving it that space and also yeah having different structures and methods story bridges one we use multiple mm-hmm. but story bridges our latest favorite <laughs> and it's where we want to take our podcast in 2019 more down that path as well but yeah it's been a lot of fun but yeah without a doubt creating that space and having that space yeah well, so let's explore this story bridge now, because what you guys have been telling me about how you construct your podcasts and the messages that you try and get out there, weaving around these narratives, I would love to explore more because it's given me a lot to aspire to in this podcast as well. So awesome. how do you want to, how do you want to take this? So let's explain what story bridge is, because there's some fun gems in there too, uh, that go beyond just deep listening. Um, so with StoryBridge, what you usually do is you have a group of people. So the last StoryBridge that we did was an organization all dedicated to school gardens and and creating spaces for kids to learn about gardening in, um, in, in the school. Uh, so we chose to make a podcast out of that because it was a it was something that we want more people to know about and want people to know the effects of in the, in in the community. And it's better than saying, oh well. Kids that do school gardens are 50% less likely or 50% more likely to do whatever it might be. It makes more sense to have the people who are living this on a daily experience explain those awesome, inspiring moments that they've experienced with the kids creating impact and for them to know that too. So we created the space for that to happen. So what is a story bridge? Uh, We had that group of people. That group was like 15, 16 people, but we can have groups as large as like 100 really. It's scalable. It's scalable depending on what you're doing with it. And we uh, made it a finite space in that everybody knew what the rules were in that space and like rules of respect, rules of relationship, etc. Um, but most importantly, we asked people to think of a personal story, a story from their own personal narrative. And we gave them a prompt. Um, that prompt for them was talk about a moment in a school garden that you saw made a huge impact on a child's life. Roughly, that was the prompt. <laughs> it might have been slightly different worded. And then everybody got into groups of two. So you had one person talking to another person. Um, so we had 16 people in the group. We had eight groups of two. And each group of two is talking at the same time. And uh, one person goes first and the other person's the listener. And for about three minutes, the first teller would tell the story from their own personal experience. Based on the prompt. Based on the prompt. Um, and like the prompt is just to get people started, um, and to get them into that general context of, Hey, we're all talking about the same thing here. It doesn't have to be specifically that prompt. And we told them that too, with more concrete details. And after the first person has told their story, the listener then tells that person's story back to them in the first person as as if it happened to them. So for example, if I, if I was paired up with you, Oliver, um, and you were telling me a story and I happen to know that you were, your first place of living was in Japan. I might say when I'm telling your story back, um, when I was a boy living in Japan, now I'm not a boy, nor did I ever live in Japan, but I'm telling your story. And so that becomes I, mm-hmm. um, and then that person, the, the listener tells that story back to the person who told it as if that narrative happened to them. 
And that's really cool because it really hardwires ourselves for compassion. It's like hacking people to be compassionate. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So if you're sitting across from somebody who you might think is really different from you, um, and there's no win-win in with this person, if you're hearing them tell a story and you are telling that story back to them in the first person, you're going to have compassion and empathy for that person's story just because our, our brains are set up that way. And here I want to give a shout out to our good friend, Ching Huang Wei, who's also a collaborator with us and with Richard in the Storybridge Method. And she's actually done her PhD research on the positive community building effects of Storybridge. And there's, she has amazing examples in her dissertation. Yeah. And so then, of course, they trade places. So the person who then told the person's story back to them tells their own personal story. And then um, the person who was listening that time tells that story back in the first person. And there's always a connection that happens there. I'm still playing with it. So sometimes I wonder, like, okay, how much of this is a forced connection? How much of this really is um, an important connection? But... mm, Regardless, every space that I'm in where I do that with a group of people, it's kind of across the board, but there's always some pairs in that group where I can hardly get them to stop talking just because they have so connected and they've so received some type of nutritional inspiration from each other in that experience. And they're like hugging or I'll see people like wiping away tears. Like it just immediately gets to that heart centered place. Um, and depending on what you're doing it about, it really can help a group identify then what's important to it. So I did it in another context where what we were doing is trying to figure out, okay, how can we as a coalition be more attractive at including other people and making people feel comfortable being a part of this coalition? So I had them do a story vision partners, um, where they talked about a moment that you felt really included in a part of a group that meant something a lot to you. And then after that, we wrote a list together in the group saying um, like what needs to be present for a group to feel really inclusive and really meaningful and that group had no problem just like naming out all of the different things and it was because I'd had them connect to it in their own personal narrative first shared that as like oh this is really important with another person in that space and then as a group we made that brainstorm list. So every single person was engaged in the making of that list. Or if they had just gone straight to the list, it wouldn't have come from such a heart-centered place. It would have come more from a brain-centered place. And most probably only the loudest talkers would have contributed to the list. That too. too. Yeah. Uh, engages yeah, every, yeah. everybody's voice too because they've, they've now been primed to mm-hmm. speak and to be heard. Yeah. And see how important that would be, yeah. yeah. So that's the first part of StoryBridge. Um, What's amazing for it is a community building tool. Um, The part that I just talked about is more like a one-on-one. But as a community building tool, then you have the group of two decide which story they feel. Because that that group of two has told two stories. They have to now choose one story that they're going to continue to tell during that storytelling session. Mm -hmm. And it's not because either story is better or worse. Like it's not a win-win thing. Um, It's really about getting those two people to think about what is the effect of this story on both of us? What is the effect of this story on this group? Which story do we feel like needs to be told again in order to be, uh, be the most impactful in this space, to be the most healing in this space, to be um, like, it's just, this is a story that needs to be told. So they create a consensus amongst themselves that they're going to choose one of those stories. And then you have groups of two become groups of four that then have two stories in them. 
Um, and then they do the process again until you've narrowed it down to about seven stories, no matter how large the group is. Okay. And then what really makes it story bridge, um, and this is particularly the, there's a website called storybridge.spaces, storybridge.spaces, uh, where you can really learn more about the methodology there. That's Dr. Richard Gere. That's Dr. Ching Hong Wei. Um, what they'll then do is they'll take those seven stories and they'll turn them into performance. And so you have the group that told the stories, then actually perform the stories for a wider audience in the community. Embody the stories, too. Embody the stories. So you have that juicy, awesome, we're here together for a purpose, we're going to collaborate to create these stories. And because the stories are the people who are in the room, or the stories of people who are part of this process, there's such reverence for those stories, so much love for those stories. And it, it becomes a process of trust and a process of really seeing each other and really being there for each other that is um, deeply regenerative on the human aspect. Yeah, this is social permaculture without a doubt. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So do we want to go through one of these exercises now? Um, I, yes, yeah, we do. Um, and before we do, I just want to tell a little story about StoryBridge. Perfect. And how it can make it's very meta. Yeah, it's very meta, right? <laughs> uh, so the first, I think, yeah, that's a good one. So the first community that really used this process is um, a small community in rural Georgia called Colquitt. And Colquitt, Georgia, about 25 years ago, was facing what a lot of rural communities was facing in that a lot of people are moving out. They used to have industry. That industry was based on agriculture. The agriculture was shutting down. Like There was no more industry there. Urbanization was happening in terms that people were moving to urban areas. And the small town didn't know how it was going to survive. And Richard Gere heard about this, and he really wanted to um, explore the power of narrative of bringing people together around something that matters to them. And so he came down to Colquitt, and he ultimately had people share stories and created a play out of the stories from that community. So it was really specifically based on the values that are transmitted through stories that was important to that community in Colquitt, Georgia. And it was also a very inclusive cast. And so when he does these things, uh, particularly when he did it in Colquitt, Georgia, um, and some other places too, it's it's a cast that included young people, like the age of seven, up until older people, the age of 90. Like you don't usually get that group of people and that whole spectrum of people hanging out together and doing something meaningful together, but that's what this did. It also included blacks and whites in the, and anything in between in the same cast, which again, especially in like Colquitt, Georgia, in the 70s, that doesn't happen very often. Um, and all the stories were shared, all the stories were seen, and they turned it into performance. And the part that I love about this is that when you do this, like coincidences and synchronicities can pop up. And uh, one of the coincidences and synchronicities was a little boy in that cast who was black loved firemen. And there was a fire station right across from the hall. And so he used to just, on all of the breaks, go and hang out right next to the fire station. So the fire chief started kind of getting to know him. He was The fire chief was really turned off to the whole story bridge idea. And the creating stories and theater and like, what is this? No, I don't want anything to do with it. But for some reason, the fire chief ended up in the building during one of the performances and he was captivated. And he ended up not missing another performance ever since. So like, even though he didn't think that it was something that was worth his time, just being exposed to it a little bit, he then became a very avid story bridge um, proponent. 
And that little boy who was hanging out at the fire station was showing up so consistently, so consistently, so consistently that ultimately they started letting him sweep things or they started letting him show up on his bicycles with his other friends to go and fight fires in the community. And they were showing up with such regularity, more so than the volunteer firefighters in the village, um, in the town, that ultimately it led to desegregating the fire station in the community. Um, and that town, Colquitt, Georgia, still does a Story Bridge play every single day. Um, I mean, every single year, excuse me. And they've been doing it for the last 25 years, and it's created a sense of identity for that community. And if you walk through Colquitt, Georgia, you'll see murals all over the place that are murals of the stories that have been told during Story Bridge. They don't call it Story Bridge. They call it Swamp Gravy, because that is um, like kind of their version of stone soup. It's a dish that everybody knows out in Colquitt, Georgia, where you take the leftover fish droppings and you create a soup out of it by adding what you have on hand. Hmm. Yeah. So you're going to do a story bridge really quick? Yeah. Yeah, that sounds good. So uh, this is an experiment. I've <laughs> never done this live on a podcast before like this. Um, improvisational podcast. Improvisational podcast. And we'll just see how it goes. So I have a prompt for you. Because oh. I know that you are a world traveler. And uh, I would love for you to tell me a story about two and a half, three minutes long. And um, then I'm going to tell that story back to you in the first person and see how that makes you feel. And we can talk about it from there. Experiential, right? Mm-hmm. All right. So the question is, talk about a time when you were traveling somewhere and something happened that had a big impact on you. All right, I've had a lot of travel stories, definitely, that have a big impact. I'm just trying to find one with a good, clean co- uh, conclusion, because mm-hmm. a lot of them otherwise are open-ended. Let me think for a second. And that's okay, too. Um, what we usually take to tell people is that the stories that want to be told tend to kind of, like, stick in the gut, and they often are the first one that you think of, the first one that bubbles up. Now, you are the storyteller. You get to choose which story you want to tell, um, but that first story tends to want to be told for a reason. Okay. <laughs> and the time is right here if you want to oh thanks mm-hmm. for when the three minutes so while you're thinking about it I'll tell another story bridge story real quick um, I was doing a story bridge in Ashland Oregon at a, um, a transformative young leaders training and uh, I had a friend in that training um, who who had gone through a lot of things in his life and the story bridge that they had us do at that time, the prompt, like I just gave you, had us go really deep. It was like, talk about the, the, we start using metaphors for these. And the metaphor was ultimately like, what was that time that you were so in the dark that there was no other place for you to go except to look for the light ultimately. Mm-hmm. Um, and a friend of mine ended up telling a really personal story. A lot of people did, but it was a story that he'd never shared before. And it had to do with really dark parts of our culture that we don't usually talk about. Um, he happened to have been um, sexually abused as a child. And that's the story that he told and how that that had played out in his family and family dynamics. It, like really deeply, like these were wounds that has, had turned him into who he was today. And he ultimately made a choice to, um, look at that story differently but for the first time he really shared that story and then he had that story shared back to him in the first person and then that was the story that was chosen to then be turned into a performance and he chose to play himself in that performance because when you do the performance you don't have to be yourself you could actually be the person who's the perpetrator rather than the victim or whatever you want to be he chose to be himself 
And then in that story, he, he changed it and he confirmed the reality that he wanted to have happen by having the last part of that be him having a reconciliation with his mom over all of that, which had happened, but by performing it, it became an even more real. And, uh, that experience of taking something that was so deeply held within himself that so often in our culture, like wrapped up around shame, like you just don't share it or there's just not a space for it. He got to share it and other people helped him share it. And so suddenly that burden wasn't so heavy on him and he was able to, um, to really transform. Um, and the phrase that came out during that process is many hands make light work. So it's like many hands lifting up a story, make it not so heavy on one person and makes it more of something that the uh, community is looking at, which is ultimately a way that you change things that you do want to have change in a community. That's beautiful. Yeah. Do you have a story yet? I do have my story. All right. Are we ready? Yes. Okay. So I have hitchhiked in a lot of different countries, but Laos was probably the one that I remember the clearest. So I was traveling with a buddy of mine from Canada, both two tall, gangly white kids in the middle of Laos, and we decided to hitchhike kind of on a whim. We had booked a, a shuttle bus to take us to a border, and it turns out, like in many other places in developing countries, that bus does not leave unless it's full, and nobody was coming that day. So we either needed to wait for another extra day or find another way to get to the border. And we were like, man, we both hitchhiked before. How hard can it be? And so we stuck out our thumbs and got no ride. And a few more hours went by, no more rides. And finally, somebody who saw us standing on the side of the road came over and said, no, no, not like that. Not with your thumb out, rather with your hand out, waving towards you kind of in a downward motion. That's how you get rides here. And it took us about three minutes to get a ride that way. <laughs> Turns out hitchhiking is a totally normal thing there. Everybody does it because not that many people have vehicles. They just don't stick out their thumbs. There's a different symbol for it. So we had a series of very haphazard rides, one where we were going through the mountains and within a few minutes it became clear that the brakes didn't really work on the truck we were in. Because as we started to go down the hills, the guy was like slamming on the brake pedal and we were slowing down minorly and then careening around those turns, how we didn't die that time, I still don't know. <laughs> and then we finally got picked up uh, by a pickup truck and we're riding in the back of the cab out in the open air. We're like, oh, this is phenomenal. This is really beautiful. We're going through all this gorgeous countryside, forested mountainlands, and all of a sudden we started smelling smoke. We're like, huh, someone must be having a fire or something. Like, we're Because at the same time, we're going through all of these small communities where it's basically just little wood and thatch huts. The villages were really, really basic. And we're like, oh, they probably just cook with fire. And then there was a lot of smoke. And then there was even more. And to the point where we pretty much couldn't see out of this open truck cab. And we kind of turned around and we could see flames off in the distance. We were about to drive through a forest fire. And we were not inside the truck. We were just in <laughs> open back outside, which did not seem to concern our driver in the least. So we kept driving through this forest fire and off the side, we see people like throwing sand on it. And I'm like, this is the solution. And then after that, we saw a guy with an AK-47 supervising the people who were throwing sand on the fire. And I was like, oh, uh, 
there's probably a backstory here that I don't want to investigate. <laughs> Let's keep driving. And it did get pretty hot as we were driving and very smoky and tough to breathe. But fortunately, we got through it before it got too hot and before we started to suffocate. So that was fortunate. It was a, quite a thing to observe. I still make up backstories in my head. Um, but we finally ended up getting to the border. And just before the border was going to close, we got our visas, we got through, and the only way to get down into the nearest village was to catch a ride with one of the migrant workers who sort of crossed the border regularly selling things from one side or the other, and they had these big loaded up motorcycles. So we paid, each one of us paid a motorcycle driver a bit of money to take us down the mountain and into Vietnam. And the conclusion that I actually have on this is borders are made up. We've completely invented them. Uh, they're geopolitical lines that we've drawn on a map. Sometimes they correspond with geographical features like mountain ranges or rivers, and sometimes they're purely political. Well, though the lines themselves might be made up, over time we make them real. Crossing from forest fire, unregulated Laos on dirt roads, all of a sudden everything was paved, nice and clean, and the towns and the settings were just completely different. And this is when I kind of internalized because I had done a lot of traveling before this, but mostly it was making jumps by plane. I very rarely was crossing borders um, that, that were over land. And when I was, it was in places where it wasn't extremely different. But this is when I realized that imaginary borders can be made real over time. Mm. Thank you for that story. All right. Uh, so caveat, I'm usually really good at this. Um, I'm also hungry, so I'm going to do the best I can. <laughs> we got snacks. <laughs> you want some snacks? I'm good. Some I'm going to tell the story back We can tell it together right. and fill in. Okay. I think want. I'll be okay now. Okay. <laughs> That's something I love to do. Uh, all right. So a while ago, I was traveling through the country of Laos. And I was traveling with a friend of mine. So we're like these two big gangly white dudes traveling through Laos. And uh, we wanted to cross the border into what country? Vietnam. And we wanted to cross the border into Vietnam. And so we would hired a shuttle to do this. And we, we found the shuttle, and we were on the shuttle, and uh, like in many developing countries, we found that this shuttle wasn't going to leave unless it was full of people and nobody else was coming that day. So we needed a different plan. Either we had to stay another day, or we could hitchhike. So we decided to try hitchhiking. And we stood on the side of the road, and we stuck out our thumbs, and cars kept passing, and cars kept passing, and nobody was picking us up. And we didn't really want to think about that. Um, but then... Somebody told us, no, 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 that's not how you hitchhike here. How you hitchhike here is you stick out your hand and you wave towards yourself. And within three minutes, we've caught a ride. Ends up that hitchhiking is super, super common in Laos. There's just a different symbol for it. <laughs> and so we, uh, we got a ride and we're riding through and um, maybe we've gotten multiple rides. But ultimately, we ended up on a truck that didn't have very good brakes and we didn't know they didn't have brakes until so we started going downhill. And we saw that the guy driving had to pound on those brakes a lot. And we were not slowing down, like, hardly at all. Uh, I'm still happy that I survived that one. I'm not really sure how I did, but thank you. And um, another thing that happened is that we started smelling smoke. And we're going past all these different villages, et cetera. And we're like, okay, maybe somebody's cooking something. But there's a lot of smoke. 
And ultimately we realize this is that we're about to go through a forest fire and that this is definitely an issue because we're not even on the inside of the vehicle. Me and my friend are on the outside of the vehicle and this doesn't seem to bother the guy at all. And so we start driving through this forest fire and we're on the outside of the vehicle. So it's super smoky and there's a fire and it starts getting hotter and we see people throwing sand on it. And we see somebody with an AK-47 like guarding the sand. Gratefully, we survived that one too. Didn't suffocate. And when we got to the border and we crossed the border, everything changed really quickly as in suddenly the roads were paved. Suddenly the villages that we saw were a lot more developed. And this really struck home to me that though borders are made up, like there's just lines that somebody has drawn and it's, it's not something that exists in nature, but it's something that exists in, in our geopolitical climate. We, they can become real over time. Cause when we crossed into Vietnam, I could really see the difference in, in people and places um, that made me understand that humans can make the borders come real over time. Marvelous. That was really impressive. Well done. <laughs> Uh, you told that better than I did. <laughs> <laughs> eh, storytelling, you know, you did a great job. Um, so how did it make you feel to hear a story being told back to you that happened to you? That was something new, especially from the perspective of my own, like first person perspective coming from someone else was, uh, was impactful. What made it impactful? Uh, reliving that through your interpretation. And I could tell that you don't have the visuals that I do when I'm telling that story, but I could see you sort of forming them in a linear way from the way that I told it. Yeah. And that happens when you are the teller of somebody else's story. Suddenly I have visuals for things that I didn't live. They might not be your visuals, but I will have them Mm -hmm. just because I'm talking about it as if it happened to me and the visuals to start happening. Yeah. That was remarkable. So that, uh, just hardwires people for compassion. Like, I feel like now I know a little bit more about you. Yeah. I know more about what's really important and impactful to you, which is a way that you view the world and the way that you're experiencing the world and how that affects your perspectives and opinions about the world. That's super vague, but I think you know where I'm getting with that. I certainly do. Yeah. <laughs> nice. All right. So working with these exercises, how have you implemented them in different spaces, not just for the podcast, but within the communities that you engage with. And what do you see as kind of the goal of connecting people on these story levels? You want to go? Yeah. Um, So one of the ones that we did in Houston, which was really a lot of fun, was one called uh, We All Gotta Eat. And it was about healthy local food and our experiences with food and food culture in general and um do you want to talk a little bit about i don't remember the exact prompt for that one but oh gosh i don't remember the exact prompt either i just remember the question that i was investigating in that was um like how can more people have access to healthy local food um yeah in general i think when we explore these questions together, again, getting back to the statistical part of it, say, for example, we have X number of people suffering from obesity or X number of people suffering from malnutrition. I think that resonates with a certain type of mindset. And those facts can be better bolstered by a real heartfelt story. And so what these, this process does and these processes do is they elicit those stories out of the community. 
Mm-hmm. They're stacking functions. That's what I like about it in a social permaculture sort of way. Because you have the group of people that are telling the stories and they're getting the benefit of being really listened to. So that also means that they're learning how to listen, which as we talked about before, that is one of the foundational building blocks of creating change is creating people that know how to listen. Mm-hmm. And so that happens in these experiences right off the bat. Second thing is it, it creates that space for people to, to share their narrative and have their narrative be validated and have that narrative connect for themselves in some big way um, in terms of what has meaning for them and what they choose to have meaning. So that's awesome for the, for the people in it. Thirdly, the people in the space that are creating the performance together. And mind you, StoryBridge does not always have to be a performance. Um, StoryBridge spaces, that, that is a, always ending a performance. Um, we've been exploring with it ending in a podcast instead. Um, but the group of people that are creating the performance suddenly have bonds that weren't there before. And they, they have relationships that then can go on to do something else and be something else, which is important, especially if you've got multiple communities coming together to tell stories. That's a beneficial thing. And then finally, you have them sharing these personal stories out to the wider community, which creates this space, which is a celebration as well as an investigation of things that are important to that local community. Or in this case, we are really investigating local food and bringing that attention and that spotlight that arts can do, um, that creative events can do to local food and what that is and what are the stories in our community right now right here. Um, and those stories can be inspirational. Those stories can be sad. Those stories can be impactful in all the different ways that stories can be, but it's very real and very authentic. And everybody in the audience gets to experience that and take that home. And that, what effect that that story performance had, which I think is hilarious and amazing is a dear friend of ours who was part of the story ultimately decided that he did not want to be living in Houston anymore. Cause that's where we did it. Um, he'd been thinking about leaving for a while and he did leave because he wanted to be um, living a life that was more alive for him, I suppose, and the things that the story Bridget brought up for him. And he's still living in South America somewhere. Wow. Like he just like that was the impetus, the catalyst that had him move. And for me personally, too, I'm working with a metaphor, maybe of a handful of seeds. And this process uh, is a series of seeds that you can go and sow. And one of the things that's reaped from it, I believe, is what Ching Hong has expressed in her research, that of empathy. When I go in the, either in the telling the story back in the first person, uh, and in addition to that, also the part where we embody the stories that have happened in a theatrical performance, that embodiment of that story that exists in that room, we're not talking about some far off Greek God. We're talking about this person in front of you that you now know, you can see, you can smell, you can touch, etc. Um, I, in a sense, lived their story in that enactment that we do in the story bridge process. And that, for me, cultivated such a sense of great sense of empathy for that other person that I have found very, very, very difficult in other all other aspects of my life and my culture to feel that depth of empathy. It's a process where my story becomes our story and the our story happens. And in certain cases, um, when you can have a really strong our story, our mission, our vision, what is important to us, that is what can keep like the ducks flying in the formation and like moving towards the same direction at the same time. Um, and Ching Hong Wei as well, she she did her PhD dissertation on Colquitt, Georgia, 
that town that's been doing story bridge for the last 25 years together. And her dissertation proved in the ways that um, social sciences like to prove things that, uh, and it was in urban planning and urban development, um, that Colquitt, Georgia had more resiliency within it. And she had benchmarks of how she was measuring the resiliency than other small towns of its size, of its similar history that were around it. Mm. And um, a lot of that had to do with the coming together and telling stories. I can imagine. Now, before we wrap things up, because I've got to attend to a few things on the farm. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about how one can invite more storytelling and better listening in their own lives. Ooh, that's a good question, my friend. So Rhapsody is really, um, in my mind, um, a wealth of knowledge on a lot of different techniques, including StoryBridge. And I would first and foremost reiterate giving space for story. And like you were mentioning to me earlier today, um, building a table, right? So having a physical space, obviously, for story, but then also the meal is a place for a powerful place for story that you don't even necessarily have to have some fancy advanced technique or go to a training on how to do just serve somebody a meal or have a meal with another person and sit across from them and the stories will will emerge so having a physical space and a temporal space for it i think is is Mm -hmm. the first key that anybody can take yeah and to add to that a couple more things like definitely creating a space for it um when you're telling stories you're creating culture and one way that you can do that is by repeating certain stories that are important to your mission and vision of whatever it is you're creating. So Grand Hasekin, for example, or Abundant Edge. Um, if you have a story of something that's happened here that is really like just a great story at depicting and sharing the experience of the values that you hold dear here, share that story, share that story, share that story amongst each other, amongst any person that comes to your farm. So that story starts to identify with your organization in a way that can just go a little bit deeper and help people connect to what you're doing here. So that's one way you can do it um, to create more of a cultural vision. The other way that you can do it is to create that space within the rhythm of a week for there to be shared stories. Um, so one way you can, I've seen some families do it is, and, uh, that I personally really like is sharing that, that moment of impact. Um, uh, that's not what I mean. Sharing like a, a highlight of your week and have it be a practice of sharing a highlight of your week. Some people like to call it peaks and valleys. Some people like to call it roses and thorns. We actually did that with, um, Loxley's family over the Christmas holiday. We, we were sitting there and eating, um, Christmas dinner. And we had everybody go around and share, like, what was the things that you want to celebrate about 2018? And every single person went around and just shared a little bit. And it wasn't a full, like, developed story, but it absolutely gave me more inkling into what's going on with these people who maybe I only see once a year. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can do that on a weekly basis, like, just creating that space to really listen to those stories. And even small little, I guess you would say, finite structures, putting it, to there and having a clear basis of rules beforehand like we said okay we're gonna go clockwise and everybody's gonna get a chance to speak and there was mm-hmm. and just a minimal amount of facilitation when one person was uh started to cross talk over another it's like okay now it's this person's turn and that didn't happen very often but sometimes um a little bit of structure and giving people a heads up too yeah. uh, helps and then we went around and we did uh what are you 
uh, what are you most excited about for 2019, for mm-hmm. example? And it gives us things to connect in with those people about. Um, and then one more, uh, when it comes to a group of people working on something together, making cultural norms explicit is really important. And I think that that's particularly important for that deep listening exercise mm. that I talked about before. And like next time that you have a group meeting with a group of people that you want there to be more listening, introduce that practice and, and say, I think listening can really help us achieve our goals together. So we can really know that we're being seen and heard. I learned this way of doing it. Um, can we practice this real quick? so that we can try it. And so then you invite somebody in your group to, um, to talk about what's on their mind for two minutes. And then you repeat back to them, not an I, but just what I heard you say is that you've been working on this and this and this, and that this is a challenge that you're facing and that this is something that's going really well for you. And then give that person a chance to reflect back on anything else that maybe you'd missed. And then you've showed people what listening is and you're inviting people to be part of creating that cultural norm in your community. I love these insights. Uh, I can tell already I'm going to go back over this episode a few times <laughs> to kind of mine these and uh, hopefully kind of remind myself and find ways to put them in practice. I can see very clear crossovers already of some of the concepts we've talked about and how it can affect even like the infrastructure that we put in. You know, always I look at things through a design perspective and how can you design for storytelling? How can you create the infrastructure and the space, uh, not only within the built world, but within time to invite these sort of connections and invite the vulnerability and the sharing from other people to really connect in that way. So thank you so much for making the time to come here. It's been so much fun just getting to know you both. I hope we stay in contact and know that you always have a home here at Grand Hasikin. If you ever come to Maui, let us know. Maybe I we certainly can set will. Up a workshop somehow in the future. That'd be really cool. That would be really fun. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Let's do it. Yeah. Um, so before I let you go completely, could you let our listeners know how they can get in touch with you and find some of your resources? Sure. We have a website, uh, which is www.storyconnective.org. And that's connective, like connective tissue. So that's one way you can remember it. Uh, you can find our podcast on any of your favorite podcasts apps mm-hmm. and except spotify we don't seem to be on that one yet <laughs> i know i gotta work on that one too oh yeah which is silly because that's where i get all my podcasts <laughs> it's very hypocritical that's yeah, funny. i actually uploaded my first podcast before i ever downloaded a podcast you you? but i was oh, well, an avid then. podcast listener before that yeah me too yeah um and then we also do have a social media presence you can find me on instagram instagram at rebecca.rhapsody um, and you can follow along there and then you can find the story connected on, um, other social media apps as well, especially your most basic ones. Marvelous. All right. Well, again, thank you so much for taking the time. I hope we stay in touch. Thank you. Right, thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles, as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. 
While you're there, don't forget to take a look at the courses and workshops we offer, which are all designed to empower you to take back control of your life by giving you the skills to produce your own food, manage landscapes regeneratively, build your own homes and structures with natural materials, and most importantly, to dream ever bigger about the highest potential that you could achieve for yourself, your community, and the planet that we share. I'm very grateful to all of you who have added comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at AbundantEdge.com. And all of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you again in next week's session.